Morning, church. Sure look lovely today. Um, well, Easter's coming up, and um, maybe some of your friends and neighbors are looking for a, a church where they can um, bring a spiritual dimension to their Easter celebration instead of just Easter eggs. And if so, we have two ways that you can invite them. One is uh, to, on the social media platform, Facebook or Twitter. You'll find something that looks a lot like what you see up there on the screen. Uh, you can share that and let all your friends and neighbors what your plans are on Easter. Or if you want to do it the old-fashioned way, uh, we printed about 10 million of these little cards. Please take them, lots of them. And uh, you can just hand these to your friends and neighbors who are looking for a church for Sunday and uh, has all the information on there. It's really easy uh, for you to do so. There's a, a couple other things that I'd like to uh, talk to you about. Just uh, really make next Sunday a, a time of radical hospitality. Um, Wear your name tags, you know, if you can find it. Joyce, she has her name tag on. You get extra bonus points uh, today for doing that. I think my wife, you keep yours in the refrigerator back at home, so get that off, bring it with you, wear it, put it on. And um, introduce yourself to people that you don't know. If you see a new face, you know, just say, hey, welcome to Anderson Hills. They might say, you know, I've been coming here for 20 years. That's okay. Uh, just introduce yourself and get to know some new people. Uh, they all really appreciate that. And we're going to have a lot of greeters around the building, but if somebody looks lost, you know, if they don't know where to take their child or something like that, or they don't know where the worship is, just take a moment and say, hey, can I help you find uh, where, you, where you need to go? Let's just practice that kind of, of warm hospitality. And because there are going to be so many guests, it may not be possible for you to sit in your favorite place. Okay? So would you be, please be merciful and uh, if somebody's in your seat, you know, find another place and, and be patient as the ushers try to get everybody seated. So just remember that uh, for next Sunday. Well, today we're finishing up our series on Jonah. Uh, it has been a lot of fun. Uh, but surprisingly, we're going to do this uh, by reading a passage from Matthew's Gospel, uh, chapter 12. Now, I want to give you just a little background first. Um, in this chapter, we're beginning to see a lot of resistance against Jesus by the religious rulers. I mean, it really begins to coalesce. And they accuse him of some ridiculous things. One of them is harvesting on the Sabbath when his disciples pick a few heads of grain to eat. And then they criticize him when he heals a man with a, with a, a damaged hand on the Sabbath. And, and every time he tries to reason with them and point out from Scripture uh, how they are misunderstanding, uh, but they just don't get it. It's, just, it's to no avail. Uh, they're no longer listening. And in fact, in verse 14, Matthew says this, The Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill him. The criticism becomes absurd when he heals a man who's possessed by an evil spirit, and they accuse Jesus of of having a power to do this because obviously he must be in league with the devil. And Jesus shows them how absurd that is by saying, you know, a house uh, divided, what? Will not stand. Yeah. Brings us to verse 38. Some of them said to him, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. 
For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so for three days and three nights the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth. The people of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the proclamation of Jonah. And see, something greater than Jonah is here. Something greater than Jonah is here. What is he talking about? Well, he'd already given them lots of signs and miracles. And not only had they not believed them, but they had ascribed them to the power of the devil. So what is this sign? What in the world is Jesus talking about? He's talking about his, his death and burial three days in the tomb and then his resurrection. Those would be the only signs that they would need to believe in his mission and what he was doing. Now, we don't think much of this mention uh, of Jonah uh, by Jesus, but the early Christians saw the parallels between Jonah's life and, and Jesus' life. In fact, if you were to go to Rome, even today, and visit the catacombs where Christians hid during outbreaks of persecution, you would find no fewer than 57 images of Jonah painted on the walls there. They, they saw these parallels. And, and commentators have pointed out the, the fascinating parallels between Jonah's experience in the storm and, and Jesus' experience in the storm. Think about it. Um, both Jonah and Jesus are out on the water on boats. Both encounter these wild, almost supernatural storms. Both of them are surprisingly asleep during the storm. And in each case, the others in the boat come to the sleeper and cry out, hey, you're going to have to do something or we're all going to die here. And in both of the situations, there is this miraculous intervention by God and the sea is calmed. And then finally, both the sailors who were with Jonah and the disciples who were with Jesus are more terrified after the storm than during it. Isn't that interesting? I mean, this can't all be a coincidence, can it? Well, God commands Jonah to go to Nineveh, but he runs in the opposite direction. What we've learned in our study of Jonah is that the root of his disobedience was this, his mistrust in God, his mistrust in the goodness of and the love of God. He did not believe that God had his best interest at heart. You see, all sin, all sin against God is rooted in this refusal to believe that God is more dedicated to our good than we are. I mean, the truth is, is that we distrust God because we assume that God is not truly for us, for us, that if we give him complete control of our lives, that we are going to be miserable. You ever had that thought? Is God trustworthy? I know I have. Back, back in seminary, we students, we would kind of nervously joke about that. You know, we think, what if God sends me to some poor backwater town like rabbit hash or, <laughs> well, you name it. 
Or what if God sends me to a foreign country that I don't want to go to? I mean, we all knew that was kind of a possibility in the back of our heads, and, and we were all willing to go, but we were really happy, hoping that it wouldn't happen, that we'd get to go to some place that we liked, some place that was nice. And see, at the heart of that was not trusting that God truly knew what was best for us. In fact, we were pretty sure that we knew what was best. Now, this distrust is a part of being human, isn't it? I mean, think about it. Adam and Eve did not say to themselves, hey, let's just be evil and ruin our lives and everybody else's life for all generations to come. You know, that's not what they said. You know, they just wanted to be happy. But God's command to not eat from the tree looked like, at least to them, it looked like God was withholding something good from them, something that could really help them to thrive in their lives. And so they said, we can't trust God, so we're going to take control of our own lives. See, that's the lie of the serpent. That is the original temptation of Satan to Adam and Eve. The serpent told the human race that disobeying God was the only way to realize their fullest happiness. And so Jonah's story is really our story. I mean, seldom do we lie. Seldom do we twist the trust, uh, the, the, the truth. Seldom do we cheat or exploit or manipulate or, or act selfishly or break our promises or, or destroy relationships because we desire to be evil people. I talked to a man once who destroyed a number of lives, including his own family. And he said to me, he said, I am not a bad person. He could not see himself as an evil person. And Jonah does not see himself as evil either. But he cannot trust God, and so he runs. Now, the very antithesis to this story is found in Genesis chapter 22. And every time I read it, it blows me away. I mean, it is beyond my comprehension. One day God says to Abraham, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, and sacrifice him on a mountain that I will show you. Now this makes absolutely no sense. And no reason is given to Abraham as to why. I mean, God has never asked for a human sacrifice before. In fact, it was absolutely forbidden. And if Abraham carries this out, guess what? God's promise to make Abraham's descendants as, as numerous as, uh, as, the, as the sand on the shore, they're going to be null and void. But what does he do? He goes on the mountain and takes Isaac with him. I can imagine all the angels and, and archangels of the heavenly realms gathered that day on that mountain to see what would take place. And, and you and I, we, we know what God was doing. We know why God was doing this in Abraham's life, but he didn't. And yet, unlike Jonah, he chooses to trust God that somehow God knows what he's doing, that God knows best. 
And when Isaac asked where the lamb was for the burnt offering, Abraham replied, My son, God will provide the lamb. And he built an altar. He bound his son. He laid him on the altar. And he took a knife to slay his only son. see, a big part of the reason that we, that we have such a hard time in this area is because we trust ourselves too much. I mean, we think that we know far more than God what's going to make us happy, right? Those of you now in midlife, those of you in your 40s, you look back upon your 20s, and what do you think? Man, I didn't know anything, Right? I was clueless. Let me tell you, from somebody whose 40s is now ancient history, at midlife, you still don't have a clue. (laughs) And I don't either. (laughs) You see, the mission that God called Jonah to could have meant suffering and death. He knew very well that he could walk in that city of Nineveh, begin preaching, and lose his head, or at best be uh, treated violently and thrown into jail. He knew that. And that's not unusual even today. I mean, in recent months, the Chinese authorities have been closing churches. They've been arresting pastors and members and throwing them in jail. They've been literally burning the crosses off the top of churches. Chinese Christians know that if they're going to stand for the faith, that they may very well face persecution. But they refuse to stop gathering. See, Jonah refuses too, thinking only of himself. Now contrast that all with Jesus. I mean, Jesus knew that the mission that God had called him to would most certainly mean death and suffering. He even told his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem, and there I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be beaten upon, spat upon, I'm going to be whipped, I'm going to be crucified, and three days later, I'm going to rise. And they're sitting there scratching their heads going, what in the world is he talking about? But think about it. Jesus did this for us. So why would we ever think that God cannot be trusted? I mean, God is good. If if he did all of that for us, why would he not do everything in his power to give us a full and abundant life? Everything that we need. Now the New Testament has a word for this. It's it's agape. It's a Greek word for love. And, and, and the New Testament writers took this word, this Greek word, and they, they infused it with a, with a new meaning that spoke about self-sacrifice and self-giving. And, and, and the Apostle John took this up in, in his letter. He said this, This is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. He says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? And he says, dear children, let us not love with words or speech but with actions and in truth. 
And so John is saying, if you want to know uh, the standard for real love, it's this. Jesus dying for us. Jesus sacrificing his love for us. And he goes on, he's, and he challenges you and me to live our lives in the same way in the service of others. He says, love is a verb. Love is something we do. It's action. And so John teaches us that love is the fundamental ethical principle by which Christ followers live their lives. And again and again in this short little letter, he affirms that that real godly love is the test of our authentic discipleship. So much so that, that John's theology uh, is love, a part of John's theology, that he is called the apostle of love. And, and for John, again, love is, is not mouthing the words, I love you, even though we need to hear those words regularly from, from those who love us and those whom we love. But he says it's also something that we need to live out in deed and in truth. It's how we live our lives. Sacrificial love. Now, we know this. We know we're supposed to be loving people. In fact, Jesus said that the mark or the sign of a, of a true disciple is whether they love one another or not. The Apostle Paul in, in the book of, uh, told the Roman church that, that we must not owe any kind of debt except the debt of love. And he told the Galatian church that the, the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence of, of God working in your life, is, first of all, love. And then he drives it all home in, in, in 1 Corinthians. He's right into this messed up church in Corinth. And, and he, he tells them this. He says, you know what? You can speak in tongues of men and of angels. You can have prophetic powers and supernatural knowledge. You can have incredible faith. You can sell all of your possessions. In fact, you can die a martyr's death. But if you don't have love, it's what? Nothing. It means nothing. Now, every once in a while, we, uh, we see this sacrificial love in our culture. Not very often, but sometimes we do. Uh, back in the 90s, one of the favorite movies in our family was, um, was The Last of the Mohicans. I mean, it had it all, right? Violence and a love story. Any, any of you guys remember that? No? Okay, a couple, couple of us remember that. But you may remember that, that uh, the British Major Duncan Hayward, he asked his Indian captors if he might be a replacement for Nathaniel and, and Korah. And, and they agree, and, and he's being dragged away, and he yells out, My compliments, sir, take her and, and get out. And, and the riveting scene ends with Duncan's arms bound and stretched out as if he is on a cross. Or maybe you remember uh, the, the autobiography of Ernest Gordon about being a prisoner in, in World War II, and he recounts how at the end of a day of, of forced labor that the guards counted the shovels and, and one was apparently missing. And so a furious guard threatened all the POWs that he would kill them all if one of them didn't come forward and confess that he stole the shovel. And, and so he cocks his gun. He's getting ready to kill them all, and one prisoner steps out, and he, and he said, I did it. I took the shovel. And they, they beat him to death right then and there. When they get back to camp, they count all the shovels again, and they're all there. And the prisoners suddenly realize, they are stunned to realize that this one prisoner has sacrificed himself for them. Now, maybe if you're younger and you don't remember either of those two movies, you will remember a Harry Potter movie, right? And, and in this, we see the story of sacrificial love. Uh, the Lord Voldemort 
uh, can't touch Harry without being burned. And Harry can't figure out why, but, but later his mentor, Dumbledore, explains to him, he says, your mother died to save you. And love, as powerful as that, leaves its own mark. To have been loved so deeply will give us some protection forever. Why do these stories of self-sacrifice move us so? It's because we know that anybody who has ever done anything that really made a difference in our lives did it out of sacrifice. That person stepped up and gave something or paid something or bore something so that we would not have to. Which brings us to the cross. What happened on that Good Friday? When the Bible talks about, when, when Jesus talks about sacrificing for us, what does that mean anyhow? How do we wrap our minds around that? Let me, let me just share briefly five ways that the church has spoken about this. And the first is called the moral influence theory. And it teaches us simply this. That, that Jesus came and died in order to bring about a positive change to humanity. That the moral change comes through the teachings of Jesus and through his self-sacrifice. And that within this theory, that the death of Christ is understood as this catalyst to reform a society, to inspire us to live the same kind of self-sacrificing example and to, to live good moral lives of, good, of, of love. And so when we see the cross, we see the greatness of God's love. And we no longer want to live a selfish life, but we want to live a life that means something. Another way the church has looked at this whole idea of, of atonement is, is, is that the, what happened at the cross was that Jesus ransomed us. That God offered his son as a ransom for us to satisfy what, what humanity owed to the devil. This, this debt that was on our souls because, because of our sin in the garden of Adam and Eve. But when Satan finally got a hold of, of Christ and took him down into hell, he found that he could not hold them. And then on the third day, uh, Christ rose triumphant and, and left, the, left Satan without either his original prisoners or the ransom that he had accepted in their stead. In fact, if you've ever read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, you will see this theory presented as Aslan uh, sacrifices himself on the stone tablet to the white witch. There's a third way the church talks about this, and, and that's called Christus Victor. And in this understanding, Christ dies in order to defeat the powers of, of sin and death and the devil in order to free you and I from its bondage. That is, the devil and, and all the hosts of evil are defeated at the cross, that sin is conquered, that obedience wins over disobedience, that love wins out over hate, and that life wins over death. The fourth theory is called the satisfaction theory. And in this, Jesus is understood as a, uh, as a death to satisfy the justice of God. And satisfaction here means restitution. It's the mending of what was broken and the paying back of a debt. Sin is somehow this injustice that has to be 
balanced. That Jesus died to, to pay back the injustice of human sin and to satisfy the very justice of God. And so unlike the ransom theory, we owe a debt not to the devil, but we owe a debt to God. And then finally, there's what's called the substitution theory. And that teaches that Christ on the cross simply took our place. That He bore the curse that we sinners deserved. That He died the death that we should have died. That Jesus died to, to satisfy God's wrath against human sin. That Jesus is, is punished in the place of sinners in order to satisfy the very justice of God and the legal demand of God to punish sin. In a sense, it is a, it is a legal balancing of the ledgers. Jesus died for legal satisfaction. You see, at the cross, all of these theories, these these ways of looking at it point to this one thing, and that is this, that it answers Jonah's question of how does God's justice square up with God's mercy? How can God show mercy to an evil empire when it deserves to be wiped off the face of the earth? And it answers our question, how can I, a sinner, be accepted and shown mercy by a loving God, by a holy God. It's the cross. On the cross, God's justice and, and, and God's mercy come together. On the cross, both justice and love of God fully cooperate. And so Paul would write in Romans 3, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. Now, Jonah didn't know this, though I suspect he does now, and we know it. Christ died for us. The cross is proof that we are loved by God. The cross is proof that we matter to Him. The cross is proof that we can trust our lives to Him. The cross is the proof that God has our best interest at heart. American novelist Joseph Mitchell tells of a conversation that he had with his dying sister in North Carolina. And as he sat by her bedside, she was struggling to understand what all this meant. And she finally said, Buddy, what in the world does Jesus' death on the cross a long time ago what does it have to do with me now? What does it have to do with my sins? And Mitchell sat there struggling to find the right words to explain this to his, to his sister. And finally said, somehow, he took our place. Jesus died for me. So we can trust God for our lives. God has been through the storm. There's no storm that you're going through right now that God hasn't already understood and experienced. He knows what it's like. He's experienced your pain. He's experienced your suffering. He's experienced your rejection. And He's not going to let you sink. In fact, the only storm that can really sink you, He's already taken care of that storm. 
See, in that ultimate storm that he faced, Jesus bowed his head willingly for you. He died receiving the punishment for the sin that you and I deserve so that we can find forgiveness when we trust him. And when you see him doing that for you, yeah, it doesn't answer all of our questions about suffering, but it does prove that despite it all, he still loves us and that he can be trusted, that he always has our best interest in mind and that we can joyfully, lovingly, trustingly commit our lives to him. Let's pray. Oh God, on the cross, you were our substitute. You took it all. And so God, we can trust you. God, it's hard. Our human condition is to think that we know what's best. But God, in this moment, in this moment, remind us, God, that you paid it all and that you do love us, that you care about us, that we can surrender our lives to you and, and in that find, God, incredible joy and peace and meaning and purpose. Come, Holy Spirit. Drive home this truth into our hearts this very moment. Help us to be able to cry out, God, we trust you.